Well, amen. Good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you're new here, uh, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And so if you're new here, we're so glad you are visiting us here today. I want to say hello to you. I also want to say hello to everyone who is streaming in from online. And I also want to send a warm welcome to our Kyleville campus. Can we we give Kyleville a round of applause, please? (laughs) Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, so this morning we are in the second part of our five-part series entitled Eight, The Greatest Chapter. And what we are doing in this series is we are working our way through Romans chapter 8, verse by verse, uh, section by section. And for those of you who were here last week, you know that we began the series by giving uh, essentially uh, a background, giving the backdrop for the book of Romans. And what we said is that the book of Romans is is not even actually uh, a book. It's actually a letter written from a guy named Paul to a group of Christians, a group of Christ followers who lived in and around the city of Rome. And the reason why we have named this series Eight, the Greatest Chapter, is because many theologians, pastors and preachers and and theologians throughout the history of Christendom have described Romans 8 as the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. And so what I would argue is that if if, if Romans, the book, is the mountaintop um, of Christianity, then uh, Romans 8 is the peak of that mountaintop. And so uh, I don't know how the series has been for you, but I know that I've really enjoyed wrestling with it and, and processing it. And one of the things that we brought up last week that I want you to be aware of is that in this series, if at any point you have a question, we're doing something that we've never actually done before. Uh, what we've done is if at any point there's a question that comes up, I would love for you to text a question to Romans 8 at 97000. If you text that number, it will then reply to you and you will have the opportunity to ask any question that you have. And the reason why we're doing this is because Romans 8 is one of those chapters that is so deep. There's so much theology in it, right? There's so much depth in it that there are questions that come up that maybe I won't address in a sermon. And so what I would love for you to do is text in a question. And then what we're doing is during the week, I'm filming these videos that then are put on social media and are sent out uh, in the e-news. We already did one last week. So you can go look for that. But it's just a way for me not just to preach through Romans 8, but to pastor people through Romans 8. And that's the goal with this, uh, this approach to this series. Now, this morning, our passage comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you have your devices, uh, go ahead and turn those on and go to the Bible app. We will be in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17. Now, before we jump in this morning, I want to give you just a, a quick background to this section that we're going to be looking at. See, a lot of people don't realize this, but Romans 8 is actually, not only is it one of the most theological chapters in all the Bible, but it's actually primarily about the Holy Spirit. And I find that ironic because so often people who are very Holy Spirit-centric, we'll talk about what that looks like in a little bit, but people who usually are very Holy Spirit-centric can, can, can be almost off the reserve theologically sometimes. But what I find so interesting is that the chapter, the most theological chapter in all the Bible is about not the Father, not the Son, it's about the Holy Spirit. And so as we wrestle through this, I want to just confess here on the front end, I became a Christian when I was 18, and the denomination that I got saved into uh, was a denomination that never brought the Holy Spirit up. The Holy Spirit was this really spooky person that you just avoided at all, at all times. 
in any, every way possible, right? And so I would argue that as a result of that, I grew up, at least in my Christian faith, not ever really understanding who the Holy Spirit was and the role that he played in my life. And I can tell you now, as I'm preaching through this chapter, I've never preached through Romans 8 before, I can tell you that as, I, I, as I've studied and as I deep, like dive deep into this text, um, the, the only person who didn't benefit from that was me. Not having uh, uh, an understanding, a theology of the Holy Spirit, I believe has resulted in me doing a Christian life with one arm tied behind my back. And that's how much I learned this week. And I hope that this passage will encourage you. So everyone here either has no theology on the Holy Spirit or really bad theology on the Holy Spirit. And so my goal today is to bring all of us, give us a true north. And once we understand what the Holy Spirit is actually meant to do, we will all start living the life that the Bible is calling us to live. Amen? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under four headings, and there are four benefits, um, or another way to put it, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit has four different features, four different facets. So uh, we are beginning this morning by looking at the benefit of permanence, then we are going to look at the benefit of power, then we will look at the benefit of position, and we will conclude by looking at the benefit of purpose. This list are the four things that we get as a result of the Holy Spirit residing in us. Permanence, power, position, and purpose. So this morning, we are going to begin um, by looking at the first benefit, the first feature of the Holy Spirit's ministry, which is permanence. I want to read verse 9 for you. Look what it says in verse 9 of the text. Paul writes, you, however, and he's talking to Christians here, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact, he says, the spirit of God dwells in you. Everybody say, dwells in you. Then he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Everyone say, belong to him. So the first thing that I want you to see here in verse 9 is I want you to see and understand the role that the Holy Spirit plays. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a Christian is he brings permanence. He brings the blessing of assurance, the blessing of permanence. Now, now what do I mean by that? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a couple, there's essentially a two-part phrase that I want to unpack for you. I want to un- unpack the phrase permanent, and then I want to unpack the phrase, the, the word person. So permanent person. Both are essential if we're going to understand the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our life. The the first phrase that I want to unpack for you to really understand this blessing of of permanence is that the Holy Spirit is a permanent resident in your life. In other words, when the Holy Spirit moves in, he never moves out. And and, and some of you who are kind of new to the whole Bible thing, new to the Christianity thing, you're asking questions, I'm actually making a very important theological statement here. Yeah, I've only been here a few months, but this is one of those lying in the sand moments for me. Uh, There might be people here who don't agree with me, but I believe biblically in light of Romans 8 and everywhere else in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes in, he never leaves again. And I'll prove, to that, prove that to you biblically here in a second, but, but that's the first thing I need you to see, that he is a, he's not just a resident, he is a permanent resident. He, he moves in and has no intention of ever moving out, okay? But here's the other thing that I need you to understand about the Holy Spirit. Not only does he have no intention of ever moving out, he actually has no intention of following your will, okay? 
he shows up, and in one of the things, the, the word dwell there, it says that the spirit dwells in you. The word there in the Greek, dwell, it means to reside somewhere. It means to abide somewhere. It means to occupy a space. And the implication there in the Greek is that the individual who moves in is the head of the household. So he's not coming in just to be a visitor. He's coming in to mess your whole house up. He's coming in to move the furniture. He's coming in to bust walls down. He's coming in to, to clean things up that were dirty before. He, he comes in, and the implication of the word dwell is that not only is it permanent, but he has the power. He is in control. He comes in to lead and to direct and to guide and to be the head of the household. That's what, that's what I mean there by permanence, okay? And C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. Um, he says, imagine yourself... Uh, go to the, la- the next, thank you. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation, get this, is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. So, so, so get this, when the Holy Spirit moves in, I, 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 in many ways, the Holy Spirit is like a wife, right? right? When, when, you, when, you, when men, when we get married, right, let's say you lived in an apartment and then your wife, you get married and your wife moves into that apartment, things start changing in the apartment. <laughs> right? I remember when, when Lily and I first, when we first got married, you know, I, I, we had a couch, we had a bed, we had an entertainment system, and I thought, what else do we need? <laughs> no, 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 we needed frames. We needed decorative pillows. We needed rugs. We needed uh, candles for some reason. <laughs> right? And so the, the house changed when, when my wife moved in. Every, everything became, became different. And so the Holy Spirit shows up and says, okay, not only am I living here now, but I am the one in control. Uh, I am the head of the household now. And so that furniture is going to go here. That furniture, that other piece of furniture is going to get thrown out. The, that wall is going to look different. That, we're going to paint that wall. We're going to tear that wall down. And the Holy Spirit is in the process of taking your little cottage and making it a palace. But he's permanent. He, he's not going anywhere. He is there to Stay. Here's the good news about that, though. That could seem like a negative thing, but, but here's why it's not. Because if the Holy Spirit is there to stay, then it means you can't lose your salvation. If he, has, if he resides in you, then and he's, he's moved in, he dwells in you, he lives there, he's occupied that space, then, then now you can't lose something that you did nothing and get it. You get that? See, part of the reason why certain people think you can lose your salvation is because they think you do something in getting saved. So if you play a role in getting in, then you can play a role in getting out. But I believe in Scripture, we didn't do anything to get in, and so we can't do anything to get out. The Holy Spirit moved in, and he is the one that now secures us, and he's not going anywhere. The Bible says we can grieve the Holy Spirit, but praise be to God, the Holy Spirit can be grieved, but he will never leave. That's good news. I don't know how, what, what it does to you, but, but I know that for me, it is good news. 
I didn't even read the last part of the quote. He says at the end, uh, C.S. Lewis, he intends to come in and live in it himself. He's preparing the way, preparing the house, because he's going to live in it. And he's going to run the show. And he's going to be the one in control. And so for me, the reason why it's encouraging to me to, to understand and to realize that my salvation is secure and that the Holy Spirit is not leaving is because then what that means, like, like Paul says in Galatians, what was started in the spirit, don't try to now perfect it in the flesh. That, that's not how it works. If it took the Holy Spirit to get in, it's going to take the Holy Spirit to grow up. And he's not going anywhere. And it's not just Romans that says it, though. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2, look what he says, verse 21. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us. Then verse 22, I love this. He says, and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised to us. In other words, the reason why one of the well, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons why God gives us the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is the down payment, and God says there's more coming. Uh, you're going to get heaven at some point, but this is the down payment that proves I'm going to give you everything else I promised. Which is why we can't lose the Holy Spirit, because if we lose the Holy Spirit, we're also losing heaven. And and if you later on we're going to read in Romans that that's not how it works. Those who are predestined in God's eyes are already glorified. It's all done. It's all done. And so my goal with this is to assure you, is to encourage you. Now, one of the things that Romans 8 is about, and I don't get why commentators make things so complicated, man. Like, scholars are like, well, some scholars are like, no, Romans 8 is all about the Holy Spirit. And so we're like, no, 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 Romans 8 is all about assurance of faith. And I'm thinking, why can't they both be, the, that's why we're assured in the faith. It's because of the Holy Spirit that I can be assured in my faith. I don't get why those two things have to be opposites. They're actually one and the same. Because I have the Holy Spirit residing in me, I can be assured in my faith. Romans 8 is both. It is unpacking both for us. There was a guy who came up to D.L. Moody once, the, the evangelist who started Moody Bible Institute, which is the school I went to in Chicago. And he went up to D.L. Moody after one of his sermons and said, I am struggling with my assurance. I'm struggling with losing. Can I lose my salvation? Like, can I, can, can I lose God? And see, see, uh, not see, Lewis, D.L. Moody asked a question. He said, let me ask you a question. What saved Noah in the Old Testament? Was it the ark or his faith in the ark? What saved him? The guy thought about it for a little bit. He's like, well, I guess it was the ark. He's like, yeah, right? His faith had nothing to do with the ark saving him. Yeah, nothing. Like, that's exactly how it is. It doesn't matter how you, once you're in, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. You're in the ark. And so regardless of what flood shows up, you, you are protected. Guys, listen, it's not the intensity of your faith it's not the sincerity of your faith that keeps you in. It's the object of your faith. You, get, you tracking with me? It's, it's the object. It's what you have placed your faith in that will get you through life. But here's the other thing I want you to know about the Holy Spirit and his permanence. Not only is he a permanent resident, but the Holy Spirit is actually a person. He's a person. He's, he's, he's an actual person. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity, but he is a person. And so often, when, when people don't really study, a, a, have a, a biblical theology of the Spirit, they treat the Holy Spirit like he's either this, on the one hand, this impersonal force, or on the other hand, he's a subjective feeling. So either he's either an impersonal force or he's a subjective feeling. And what we see in Scripture is that he's neither, he is a person. 
He is a person who we grow in relationship with. He is God, so he's powerful, and yet he's a person, so he's personal. So in the Holy Spirit, we have a being that is powerful and yet personal. But, but so often, what we do in Christianity, right, a lot of us, we treat the Holy Spirit um, like they treated Michelle and Destiny's Child. Y'all remember Destiny's Child? <laughs> we, we, treat Holy, we treat the Holy Spirit like Michelle. Like, like everybody knew Michelle wasn't really part of the team, right? Like, they, it was never about Michelle. Like, she was always in the back, you know, like, the lights weren't on her. Like, it was, it was super awkward. And a lot of us treat the Holy Spirit, like Michelle in Destiny's Child. And if you don't know that joke, then either you're too young or you're too old. Uh, either way, check your heart, okay? Uh, um, but, but the Holy Spirit is, is a person who we can have a relationship with, and so since he's a person, then that means a few things. It, one, it means we can talk to him. I don't know if you know this, but you can actually talk to the Holy Spirit. Like, it's not creepy, it's not wrong. Like, you could talk to the Holy Spirit throughout your day. And one of the things that I've seen in my life happening as I've been, you know, wrestling through these passages is I find myself talking to the Holy Spirit more often than now. And I start my day and I'm like, okay, Holy Spirit, this is my plan for the day, but maybe you have a different plan. And I gotta be okay with that. And whatever it is, I wanna be led by you, I wanna be talking to you, I wanna be walking with you. It says to walk with the Spirit, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. And I, I, want, I want you to be the one that leads me. And now that I'm understanding what, all that the Holy Spirit does, I've realized that for a long time, I've been taking credits, credit for things that the Holy Spirit was doing. And so I, 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 I pride myself on being a discerning person, but it really, it hasn't been me, it's the Holy Spirit impressing things on me. And I'm so quick, that because I don't have a theology, I didn't have a good theology of the Holy Spirit, I'm taking credit for things that the Spirit is doing. We, we, we can talk to him. We can also trust in him. We, as, the more we talk to him, the more we, just like any person, the more you talk to him, the more you spend time with him, the, the more you trust in him. And then here's the other thing that you might not know about the Holy Spirit. It's a very controversial thing, but it's something that I, I think needs to be said. Did you know that as the Holy Spirit leads you through life, God will never tempt you, but the Holy Spirit will put you in places to test you? And you're like, well, that sounds heretical to me. Well, the problem is, is that in Luke chapter four, Jesus, he gets baptized, right? At the end of Luke at three, and then he gets baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And the first thing it says that the Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness in order to be tempted. But he wasn't the one doing the tempting. It was the enemy. But, but don't miss it. What, what God, what, what Satan uses as a temptation to destroy you, God uses that a test, as a test to grow you. It's like every time you have a decision, every time there's, there's any sort of test or test, when you're in a moment, you got to make a choice. You either, and from God's perspective, is a test to grow you. From the Satan's perspective, it is a temptation to destroy you. The Spirit tests you. That's how you grow. That's how you mature. That's how you become more like Jesus, through, through testing. The Holy Spirit does all of those things. So the first benefit is that the Holy Spirit provides permanence. The, the second benefit is that the Holy Spirit provides power. He provides power. Look what it says in verses 10 through 14. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him, man, this is this crazy, man. Verse 11, if the, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised uh, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life. Everyone say give life. Everyone say give life. 
to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death, everyone say put to death, the, the deeds of the body you will live. And then verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the second thing I want you to see, the second benefit, the second uh, feature of the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life is that the Holy Spirit provides power. There is power when the Holy Spirit arrives in your life. Now, this power, though, it, it manifests itself in two different ways. We, we see the power of the Holy Spirit in two different areas of our life. And the first way that we see the power of the Holy Spirit is in his ability to kill. That sounds really violent, but you'll see what I mean in a second. Is in his ability to kill. And then the second way we see the Holy Spirit's power is in his ability to lead. So the Holy Spirit's power is revealed in his ability to kill and his ability to Lead. So, so the first way in which we see the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is in his ability to kill. Well, where do I get that? Well, in the text, it says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now giving life to you and to me. And the word there, life, it means to reproduce. It means to invigorate. It means to vitalize something. Okay? He, he, the, the same spirit, have you ever thought of that? That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you. And yet how many Christians are complaining to a resurrected Savior about their dying marriages and about their dying finances and about their dying faith and their dying relationships and their dying singleness when you have the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead residing in you? And that wasn't even a point, man. That was just something I got to say, man. <laughs> That's the type of power that we have been given. But here's the thing, though, because we're Americans. Sometimes I wonder if, if, if the gospel we believe, how biblical is, is it, is it more American than it is biblical? We're Americans, and so when we hear that we have power, we're like, oh, that's great. That means that God has given me the Holy Spirit to, to meet my goals, to, to fulfill my potential. No, no, he didn't, actually. Now, that's not why God has given you the Holy Spirit. The, the power that you have been given, it says very specifically in the passage, is so that you might use that power to put to death the sins of the flesh. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. His power is manifested in you, and you see his power by your ability to kill. And literally, the word there, to put to death, it means to kill. It means to execute something, to bury it in the ground so it doesn't come back. See, a lot of us, we don't kill our sin. We just put it on life support because we might need it later. Let's not go ahead. Let's not kill it. And there's, there's, there's a story in... in, in, in um, uh, my favorite author is C.S. Lewis, and in one of his books, there's a, there's a story about these group of people that go to heaven. They're going on a tour of heaven, and they're figuring out if they want heaven or not, which is not biblical, but it's just the way he writes it. And, and there's a guy who has this sin on his shoulders, lust, and, and the angel says, well, let me kill it for you. He's complaining about how much he sits, hits, hates the sin of lust. He's like, well, let me kill it for you. He's like, no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. I don't hate it that much. What do you mean kill it? I don't like it, but kill it? That's how a lot of us are. We, we, we keep our sin on life support because you never know when you need it again. But, but the Holy Spirit shows up and says, no, no, I'm here to kill your sin. Uh, Puritans, the word they use is mortification, the mortification of sin. It is, it is the killing of your sin. That's, that's one of the things that, that, that through the power of the Holy Spirit we are allowed to do. It's one of the things that, that through the power of the Holy Spirit we are called to 
do. Can you guys go back to my previous line? You put the, the wrong code up there. Thank you so much. And so, so what we see is that as we are walking with Jesus, one of the ways in which we find, one of the ways in which that power is manifested in us is by how we kill sin, okay? Now, now here's the thing. The gospel deals with sin on three levels. It deals with the penalty of sin, past tense. It deals with the power of sin, present tense, and it deals with the presence of sin, future tense. In other words, when, when you place your faith in Jesus, one of the things that Jesus did on the cross is he absorbed the penalty of sin. So when you place your faith in Jesus and you go from being in Adam to being in Christ, the penalty of sin is dealt with. But what a lot of people don't tell you is that not only has the penalty of sin been dealt with, but now the power of sin has been broken and the Holy Spirit, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And now you have the power to overcome sin because the power of sin has been broken in your life. And one day, by the grace of God, we will be removed from the presence of sin, but that's not going to happen until heaven. And so until then, we have the penalties been removed and the power has been broken. And so now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can kill the sin and the deeds of the flesh. And what's interesting about the phrase there is that it's in the present continuous tense. In other words, it is something you do initially and then something you have to do continually. Every day, you got to be putting to death the sins of the flesh. Charles Spurgeon brings up that if, if you aren't killing sin, sin is killing you. Someone's getting killed. That's what we are called to do. Now, now here's the thing. I need you to put your thinking caps on for a second which you probably should have had them on already because it's some pretty deep stuff, but, but we're going to get even deeper. We're, going, we're swimming to the deep, deep end of the pool, okay? There's, there's a few terms that I want to define for you that can seem very boring and theological, but they are important for us to understand if we are going to live the life that we are being called to live here in this text. Uh, the, the first word that I want to define for you is a, a theological term. It's called regeneration. And here's what regeneration is. When Nicodemus comes up to Jesus in John chapter 3, Jesus says to him, you need to be born again. The implication there is, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually, because of Adam, we are born spiritually dead. So the, the, the term regeneration, what it means is that when you place your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you, and when he does that, the moment he does, you go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. That's what the word regeneration means. That's one term, okay? Another term that I want you to understand that is really important for us going forward is the term justification. Now, justification is a legal term. It was language that was used in the courtroom in Paul's day. It is literally the exact opposite of the word we looked at last week, which was condemnation, which is to receive the death sentence to be found guilty. The word justification means to be declared righteous. It literally means for a judge to declare you righteous. Now, the reason why in Jesus we find justification is because when we place our faith in Jesus, when the Father looks at us, he no longer sees us. He sees the perfect life of Jesus, so we are hidden behind Jesus. We are hidden in Jesus, and so God sees us, and he sees a perfect life, and so we are justified, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. Justification, just like regeneration, happens the moment you place your faith in Jesus. Now, another theological term that I need you to understand is the word sanctification. The word sanctification is a really big word, but all it means is it's the process of becoming more like Jesus. That's it. It's that when you place your faith in Jesus, right, you are in Christ positionally, and then what happens is over time, you become like Christ progressively. 
So, so, so now, what's true of me positionally, over time, as I am sanctified, as I am set apart, made holy, what's true of me positionally becomes true of me progressively. So sanctification, all it means is the process of becoming more like Jesus. And the last phrase, last word, which I brought up earlier, but I think it's important for us to recap, is the word mortification. Now, mortification is not found in scripture, but it's the one I brought up. It's, the, it's a word that Puritans came up with. It's the idea of killing your sin. So regeneration, justification, sanctification, mortification, okay? Why are those words important? And why did I give them to you in the order in which I give them to you? Because what happens in Christianity, since we don't know the role of the Holy Spirit, since we don't understand that we are saved and justified in Jesus, what a lot of Christians do is they confuse sanctification with justification. So here's what we do. Instead of putting justification first and then sanctification comes after, the lie that a lot of Christians believe is I must be sanctified. In other words, I got to become like Jesus. I got to become more and more like Jesus. And if I do it enough, one day God will justify me. We, we put sanctification before justification, and there are so many Christians living their life trying to earn a love that they've already been given in the gospel. I, I, if, if I can obey enough, if I can uh, serve enough, if I can give enough, if I can read enough, then maybe one day God will love me. Then maybe one day God will choose me. But, but what we see is that since we're all in Adam, we're either under condemnation or if we're in Jesus, we are under justification. But, but you, you don't get there by earning it. You only get there by placing your faith in Jesus. The, the problem is, and this is, Satan loves this, Satan already knows you have Jesus. He can't take that from you. So what he does is he knows that this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. I mean, to hell as you'll ever get. So he's going to make it hell on earth. Think about it. If you're, if you're a non-Christian here today, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever be. But if you are a Christian here today, this is as close to hell as you'll ever be. And so Satan's going to try to make this hell because he can't get you there. And so he wants to confuse you so that you put sanctification before justification. And so now you're earning something that's already been given. The gospel is not something you achieve. It is something you receive. But that's why it's so important. And what's crazy is this, guys. And I don't know if you know this, but this is why the role of the Holy Spirit is so important. We're going to talk about it more in the, second, in the next point. But the Holy Spirit, the way he grows you in sanctification is by reminding you of your justification. It's weird. Like the more you understand that you're loved, accepted, and approved by a father that will never reject you, the more you want to become like his son, Jesus. That's what we see. That's why we cannot flip the two. Look at this quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man. In other words, sanctification being made like God, right? In the whole man after the image of God. Then it says, and are enabled, listen to this, more and more to die unto sin, mortification, and live unto righteousness. So, so what, what happens when you understand that, now you go into the world, not for salvation, but from salvation. I, my salvation has already been decided. I, I go into the world, not for justification, but from justification. I've already been justified, so I can go into the world uh, fully free, fully, fully loved, fully accepted. It changes. Every other religion flips it on its head. Every other religion. I don't care which one it is. There's, there's, a, there's a ladder that you got to climb, and if you climb high enough, then maybe one day you'll be approved of. But, but Christianity is not a ladder, it's a cross. 
and says the justification and the, 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 the approval and the acceptance that you want, it's not something that you achieve. It is something that you receive. Here's how the Holy Spirit kills sin in your life. You ready for this? I always thought that the Holy Spirit kills sin in our lives by attacking our hands, right? We, 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 a lot of our sins are, are, are external. And so I thought the Holy Spirit just went after our behavior, just really, really, you know, drill sergeant saying, why are you doing this? Stop doing that. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. That's what I thought mortification of sin was. But then what I, what I understood is I started past, uh, studying this passage that I, I actually didn't understand is that the way the Holy Spirit kills sin in your life is not just by changing your hands, but by changing your heart. It's not just by changing your behavior, but by changing your beliefs. I don't know if you know this, but when we commit a sin, there's actually a deeper sin happening before the external sin. We, we are believing a lie. So I'll give you an example. If I am tempted to lie to someone, let's say I'm telling someone a story and I am tempted to exaggerate a story or withhold information from the story. The reason why I'm doing that is because in that moment, I'm willing to sin against God because in that moment, what that person thinks of me is more important than what God thinks of me. See, my justification is not coming vertically from God. It's coming horizontally from this person. So I'm willing to, to change up the story in order to be accepted by the person in front of me. So in other words, my issue is not just a hand issue, it's a heart issue. It's not a, just a behavior issue, it's a belief issue. And so the way the Holy Spirit mortifies your sin, that's true of any addiction, uh, that's true of anger. Like, for example, if you get really angry all of a sudden, you got to ask yourself, why am I angry right now? Like, what is it that I think I need that I don't already have in Jesus? Why am I so offended right now? Why am I so defensive right now? Any sin you commit is because in that moment, there is something that you think you need more than Jesus. There is something that you think that that person or that place, whatever it is that you're doing to sin, is going to give you that you already have in Jesus. And so the way the Holy Spirit mortifies sin is not just by changing your behavior, but he starts with your beliefs first. He starts with your uh, heart first. And then as he changes your behavior, he changes your, uh, as he changes your beliefs, then your behavior changes. As he changes your heart, then your hands change. He doesn't just deal with the outside. He works from the inside out. That's how mortification works. That will kill your sin at its root. But not only do we see his power and his ability to kill, we see his power and his ability to lead. You know, the Holy Spirit, I don't know if you know this, okay, but, but just so you know, the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to lead your life. And, and, and I, if you don't trust that, you can go to his LinkedIn account, and when you look at his resume, there's only one thing there. He, he, he is the same spirit that led Jesus. Okay? If he can lead Jesus, he, he could probably lead you. Okay? That's a strong enough resume in, in my mind. But, but the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to lead you. And Jesus says as much in Acts 1.8. Jesus says, but you will receive power. Everybody say power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Man, we are so, look at this, we are so man-centered. We are so focused on religion and legalism that we only read the first part of that passage. We're like, all right, Jesus wants me to be a witness. Jesus wants me to go out and tell everybody about him. Listen, bro, you can't do it unless you receive power, and the power doesn't come from you, it comes from the Spirit. 
It's the spirit that led Jesus. It's the spirit that leads us. And so the Holy Spirit is able and willing to lead us. But, but what's, what's beautiful about this idea of leading is that what, what scholars say is that it carries the idea of a sheep with shepherds, with a shepherd. And so I always thought that Jesus was the only shepherd, but according to this passage, the, the Holy Spirit serves as a shepherd too. He is leading us. He is guiding us through life from moment to moment. Think about this. The Holy Spirit is so important that he is the only member of the Godhead that is still on earth. Have you thought of that? The only one that's on earth, because the Father's on his throne and Jesus is at his right hand side, the only one that's on earth is the Holy Spirit. And yet when we ignore him, we don't end up living the life that God has called us to live. That's the danger. Here, here's what I need you to see. The word there, led, it's in the passive voice. So don't miss this. What it means in the Greek is that the Holy Spirit will never force himself upon you. You have to willingly yield to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so you're like, I don't feel like the Spirit's leading me. Well, have you passively followed? Because he's not going to force himself on you. He will lead you if you allow him to lead you. And one of the things that has most bothered me about the church, one of the statements that's most abused in the church today is the, oh, I feel like the Spirit is leading me. And then almost always what the Spirit is leading you to do is something stupid or sinful. Man, I feel like the Spirit is leading me to lead my wife. Really? Wow. What Bible is that? that we quickly use the Spirit is leading me. But again, it makes sense that we do because if we think the Spirit is just a subjective feeling, then when your feelings change, the Spirit changes. But if the Spirit is a person who tells you objective truths, then being led by the Spirit is a lot more objective than what we originally thought. Listen, you want to know if you're led by the Spirit? Are you walking by the Spirit? In, 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 uh, in Ephesians or Galatians, I'm pretty sure, no, it's, it's Galatians. Paul says that we are to walk by the Spirit and we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the word there, walk, in the Greek has the idea of a, it's a military term. It's, a, it's an army term. And what it means is, is you are uh, walking in marching order. There's a commanding officer and, 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 and you are walking in battle formation. And when he takes a step, you take a step. You are marching along with the commanding officer. But listen, if you are not walking with the Spirit, I guarantee you that you will not be led by the Spirit. If you're not reading, if you're not praying, if you're not growing in the spiritual disciplines, I would be very careful with using the led by the Spirit line. Because if you're led by the Spirit, you will be producing the fruit of the Spirit. So just FYI. Okay. The third benefit that we get from walking with the Holy Spirit, with, with the Holy Spirit residing in us, is the Holy Spirit affirms our position. Let me, let me finish reading the passage, verses 15 through 17. Here's what it says. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Listen, the 
third benefit, the, the third facet of the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life is that the Holy Spirit affirms your position in Christ. He does it two ways. He does it objectively and he does it subjectively. The first way in which the Holy Spirit affirms your position in Christ is he does it objectively. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, there's two t phrases that he uses in this passage that show us how objective our position in Christ is. He uses two legal realities that because they are true, we are secure in Christ. He brings up the concept of adoption as sons, and then he brings up the concept of bearing witness. He brings up adoption, and he brings up the idea of bearing witness. So let me, let me unpack each of these. The first thing that the Holy Spirit says is, well, God says the Holy Spirit does, is the Holy Spirit helps us, and, and when he resides in us, there is an adoption that happens. It says the phrase there in the Greek is adoption as sons. But, but part of the reason why we don't appreciate that the way we should is because a lot of us don't actually have a biblical understanding of what adoption meant in Paul's day. See, adoption in Paul's day was very different from adoption in our day. So, so let me give you the differences. One of the things that would happen when it came to adoption in Paul's day is in our day, the, the, the adoption that happens is usually of a child, right? Of a baby, an infant or, or a young child. So you come in and you, you, you spend money, you spend time, you get lawyers, and then eventually the child moves into your house, they take your name, and the child has been adopted. But in Paul's day, here's why it was radically different. In Paul's day, it was never, almost, I don't want to say never, usually, majority of the time, it wasn't children that were adopted in Paul's day. Here's why. Because in our day, children are idols. We worship children. In Paul's day, it was the exact opposite. They, they weren't even valued. They weren't even seen. And as a matter of fact, many children weren't even named until the age of five because they died so early, many of them. And so children were seen as less than, okay? So adoption in Paul's day was not of children. It was almost always of adult men. A woman was never adopted in those days because a woman had no rights in those days. A woman had no uh, inheritance, had none of that, none of the privileges. It was always an adult man. So here's what we would do. If you were a wealthy older man and you either didn't have any heirs to give money to or maybe you had some heirs but there was someone else that you wanted to give money to, you would start the process and here's what it would be. It would be a legal formal event where, where, all, where between five to seven witnesses would show up and you would... You would essentially, in front of everybody, say, I am adopting this individual to be my son. Never a child. It was almost always an adult man. The moment you adopted that adult man, he was completely equal to every other child, even if they were naturally born. He had the same rights, the same privileges, the same inheritance. Now, here's how the Roman adoption system was different from the Jewish adoption system. In the Jewish system, the eldest child, the eldest son, not daughter, but the, if you were an eldest son, you got double of the inheritance. We talked about that during the prodigal series. But in, in, in the Roman world, everybody got an equal cut. And so if you were adopted, now you had the same inheritance, the same privileges, the same rights as everybody else did in that family. The one thing I want you to see, though, is that the, the Greek, and I'm glad that you ESV does this, it goes out of his way to use the phrase adoption as sons. Now, one of the things that certain translations do that really bother me is that they're so quick to say, oh, they, 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 this isn't woke enough. We, we, we got to put adoption as sons and daughters. Well, here's the thing. I, I get the, 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 the intention, but the problem is, is that it's not, it's taking our culture and forcing it on that culture. The only people that were, uh, were, were adopted in those days were men. So think about how crazy this is. He is saying that if you are a female and you place your faith in Jesus, you are treated as a son. 
So in that culture where women had no rights and had no privileges and no inheritance, he says that when you place your faith in Jesus, you are treated as if you were a son. That's crazy. That's why we said during the, the marriage series that uh, um, Christianity was one of the first places where you can have adult singles, especially widows and people who, women who never got married. Why? Because now in Jesus, in that culture, you had no inheritance, you had no legacy, you had no family. Now, because you are adopted as a son, being single is an option as a woman because all that comes from, not from your family or from your spouse, it comes from the gospel. And so in our desire to be woke, in our desire to, to, to make it readable and accessible to our culture, you actually damper, you put a, 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 wet, a wet blanket on the good news. So, 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 so that's what it means by adoption. And F.F. F. Bruce, who's one of my favorite commentators, here's what he says about the concept of adoption. He says that the term adoption may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears. But in the Roman world of the first century AD, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adopted father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was in no way, get this, he was in no way inferior in status to a, to a son born in the ordinary course of nature. And I love this part. And might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. Isn't that crazy? That, that when we place our faith in Jesus, we are adopted and God treats us like Jesus now? It says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Man. So objectively. And then the other thing that you see that's objective there, it says in the passage that the Holy Spirit, he bears witness Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. Remember what I said happens at the adoption ceremony. Whenever someone was adopted, you always had between five and seven witnesses who were there to testify that it had happened. Here's why this was so important. Because in those days, you didn't have uh, uh, computer documents. You didn't have uh, uh, documents to sign. And so in other words, if five years later, that guy that adopted you died and there was no witnesses, the, the natural born children can say, I, I don't know who that person is. He's not in my inheritance. But those witnesses were there so that when the court proceeding happened, those witnesses are going to show up and say, hey, I was there. It happened. They were adopted. They have a right to the inheritance. I saw it happen. So think about how beautiful this is, guys. Don't miss this. It says that the Holy Spirit was there in the proceedings, and so whenever we are doubting uh, our, our sonship, the Holy Spirit shows up and says, no, 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 it happened. Like, like you are a child of God. I saw it. You are adopted. That's crazy. It's, it's a legal reality. He's showing up saying, look at the documents. It's done. I was there. They are adopted. They are part of God's family. It says the Holy Spirit testifies. The, the word there, uh, 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 to bear witness, means to legally testify. It means to provide uh, a corroborating witness, to, to provide supporting evidence. The Holy Spirit shows up and says, you are a child of God. And if you're anything like me, many times the, the verdicts that, the, 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 it's like as life goes on, there are different um, uh, uh, prosecutors that show up, right? You're in the courtroom of life, there are different prosecutors that show up and doubt your salvation. Sometimes it's Satan because he's the accuser. Sometimes there's someone in our life who comes in and tries to make us feel less than, and these prosecutors come and they try to pronounce a verdict over you. 
And if you're not careful, you'll believe the verdict. And I don't know about you, but for me, the worst prosecutor is me. And I will say to myself, well, maybe I'm not a child of God then. Well, maybe I'm not as holy as I thought I was. The Holy Spirit shows up and says, listen, regardless of what verdict you've been given, unless the verdict is that you are a child of God, the verdict is wrong. Because you are a child of God, regardless of what you say, regardless of what the world says, regardless of what the enemy says, you are a beloved, adopted child of God. That's why theology matters, guys. Don't turn your brains off. Because if you don't know theology, you don't know the Bible. And if you don't know the word of God, you're not going to appreciate the work of God. So, he not only affirms our position objectively, he also affirms our position subjectively. Here's why. Because in the text, there are certain words that are used that have an emotional side to it. One of the things it says is that we cry, Abba, Father. The word there, cry, it means to, to literally yell out for help. It's an emotional term. Then he says, we cry out Abba. The word Abba is an Aramaic term. It's the only part of the passage that's not in Greek. And it's a, it means Dada. It means Papa. And here's the thing. It's so um, primal that it's not even a phrase that a five-year-old would have used then. It, it, was, it, was, it was literally the first word a child would say to their dad. So my girls sometimes try to act like they're young and like, like they're little babies again. They use Dada just to joke. But it says that the, the, the older you get, the less you use language like that because it's, it's a primal thing. It's the first thing that comes out of a child's mouth. Dada, daddy, Abba. And I'm not going to lie to you. When people pray like that, like when I'm around someone and they start with the daddy stuff, I'm like, oh, that's weird, bro. Okay, like, let's, let's calm down over there. Creep. You know, like... But according to this passage, that person has better theology than I do. Because we get to call him Abba. We get to call him Daddy. That's crazy. But, but that's what the passage says. And then you know there's an emotional component because he says that when you forget the gospel, you fall into a spirit of fear. And the word there, fear, it means to be anxious. It means to be worried. It means to be distressed. And so when we don't understand the subjective reality of the gospel, then we, we start to fall back into a spirit of fear. Here's why this is so encouraging, though, because in the church, there are two groups of people, right? There are people who are head people, and then there are people who are heart people, right? There, there are people who are facts, and there's people who are feelings. And so if you're a head person, a facts person, then your primary, your first line of defense is, does it make sense? And then if you're in the other camp, heart and, and uh, feelings, then this, how do I feel about this? Man, but what's beautiful about the gospel is that the gospel speaks to both. Regardless of whether you are a head person or a heart person, regardless of whether you are a fact person or a feeling person, the, the, the Holy Spirit takes the, these objective realities and he makes it subjective experiences so that you feel what's already true of you objectively. He, he plays that role. He, he makes it real to you. And, and if I'm being honest, I, I, even though I am a child of God, very often I, I, I walk around like an orphan. I walk around like I have never been adopted. I walk around like if I have been 
forgotten. I walk around like if I have been rejected. I, I came across this illustration this week of a pastor who in his congregation had this uh, lady or a family who had adopted this, this girl. I think it was like from China maybe. And she said that they adopted this girl and she wrote a letter to her pastor explaining to her, explaining to him how he, she had grown in her understanding of biblical adoption because of her actual adoption. It's just that one of the things she's learned about orphans that she didn't know until she adopted an orphan is that orphans believe, uh, struggle with this thing called indiscriminate affection. An indiscriminate affection is, is actually a condition, a psychological condition, that because you weren't loved and embraced by a parent figure, you will try to get affection from anybody. Any stranger you meet, you will try to perform for them. You will try to get their approval and their affection. And another thing that says that she wrote in the letter is that the, the child, she, 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 she hides her food because she's afraid that there's not going to be another meal. She has this scarcity mindset. Instead of a, a mindset of abundance, she has this scarcity mindset. She doesn't know where her next meal is going to come from. And guys, I can tell you that in my life, I live a lot more like that than I do like a child of God. And, and I go around looking for affirmation. I come up stage sometimes thinking I'm not going to be accepted. I'm not going to be approved if I don't preach a certain way. And, and I go looking for in the audience what I already have in, in Jesus. And then you, you forget and when you forget, when, when you don't take these objective realities and make them subjective experiences, then you go looking for something that you already have in the gospel. How many of us are living like orphans right now? How many of us are living out of a spirit of scarcity instead of a spirit of abundance? Uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was this famous British preacher uh, who died several years ago, he, he had this illustration to, to connect this idea of uh, an objective reality becoming a subjective experience. He says, imagine if a father and son are walking down the street. He says that they're walking down the street, and because he's his father and because that's his son, objectively, that's a father-son relationship, right? That's just the truth. It's fact. It's a, an objective reality. He said, but imagine if all of a sudden the father stopped, picked up the child, hugged him, kissed him, and told him, I love you. All of a sudden, an objective reality becomes a subjective experience. So it's not any less true, but now you feel what was already true. The, the Holy Spirit's job is to take the objective realities and make them subjective experiences. The Holy Spirit says, I need you to know that God loves you, not just theoretically, he loves you practically right now. Regardless of what season you're in, regardless of what you're struggling with, he loves you right now. Now, and, and you, one of the things it says in the passage, and, and, and I don't want you to miss this, is in the passage it says that we have been made heirs with Jesus, that the inheritance that Jesus receives, now we receive because we are in him. So I don't know how you feel about trust fund babies. I've never been big fans of trust fund babies, but spiritually, we are trust fund babies. We are not billionaires. We are spiritual trillionaires. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example of how this impacted me this week. So I'm, I'm processing this passage, and I'm like, man, how can I illustrate this reality? And so I drop off my daughter at school. Uh, Lily's out in Chicago, so I was doing the whole dropping off thing. And so I drop her off, and man, I, whenever Lily's not around, I just make dumb decisions. And so I'm like, you know what? I want to I wanna get some donuts. I just want to stuff my face with donuts right now. And so there's this place in Carville called Jim's Donuts. But the problem with Jim is that my man Jim only takes cash. And so you can't just walk in there with a debit card. And so in order to sin, I have to like actually willingly go get cash, right? And so I'm like, whatever, I'm doing it. And so <laughs> I, I park in the parking lot and there's an ATM 
not too far from there. And so I walk over to the ATM and you got to pay like a $3 fee because I have Chase and there's no Chase here in, in, in Memphis. And so I got to pay a $3 fee. And in the moment, I'm like, oh man, $3 fee, I'm taking 20 out. I'm like, should I? He said, do you want a receipt? I'm like, man, maybe I should check the account. I don't know if I have, I don't know if I have money. I got to check, I got to double check, right? And then it hit me. I was like, wait, no, hold up. It's Friday. I got paid, baby. I got paid. <laughs> it's payday, baby. I said, no receipt. <laughs> the reason why I didn't need a receipt is because your boy had money in the bank, okay? <laughs> so what I need you to understand is that when the Holy Spirit reminds you that you are an heir with Jesus and you are a spiritual trillionaire, all of a sudden when someone tries to make a $5 deposit, you don't get angry anymore. You don't get defensive anymore. You don't get offended anymore. It's payday, baby. It's payday every single day. Come on. You know, I, I want to I share a story with you here before I move to the last point. Um, um, I was born in Chicago, and then we moved out to the suburbs when I was around third grade, and there's a Bartlett, Tennessee, and we actually moved out to Bartlett, Illinois, and when we got to Bartlett, Illinois, my parents wanted to get my brother and I into organized sports, and so I played soccer, and I played basketball. I was really good at soccer, and I was really bad at basketball, which, being a minority, expectations were high, okay, and so they're like, hey, give him the ball, and then they saw me play, like, don't give him the ball. <laughs> anyway, so they put me on this team, and uh, uh, here's the thing. In, in practice, I was a beast, right? So I would know all the plays. I would, I would set the pick. I would, you know, do the bounce pass. I was a beast in practice. But for some reason, when the game started, I would, like, just blink, and I would just freak out, right? And so I actually asked my mom. I texted her. Hey, mom, can you send me a picture of, of, of that time, if you have it, of when I was on the Bartlett Rockets? And this is, this is the picture right here of me on the Bartlett Rockets. <laughs> Holla at your boy. Killing the game. So I'm on the Barley Rockets, and my dad, I don't even know why we were blue. We should have been red, but whatever. So we're blue, navy blue, Barley Rockets. And so my dad decides that he wants to be an assistant coach. Now, if you don't know my dad, my dad is super Cuban, and he has a super thick accent. And the reason why I bring that up is because no one on the team understood what my father was saying. And so the head coach would tell my dad to say things, and then my dad would yell him out, and people were like, what's your dad saying? Like, what? And so I barely played, but I was the translator for the team. <laughs> and so he would show up with his gold on, you know what I mean? And like his button down to here with his hairy chest, you know, super Cuban about it. And, 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 and one of the things that happened was I would get out there and I would, like you would think that because I froze, I would just pass the ball. No, 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 I, I didn't. Here's what I would do. I would do the same move every time. I, I would get the ball. I would get in the triple threat position. I would fake left, dribble hard right, and then throw a hook shot from wherever I was on the court. <laughs> It didn't matter if I was on the three-point line, on the baseline. It didn't matter where I was. Same move. Fake left, hard right, hook. <laughs> so my dad, on the way to one of the games, is like, hey, listen, brother, we, we got to talk, man. Like, just pass the rock, baby. Just pass the rock. And I'm like, dad, I got to shoot my shot, man. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so I remember, so, so you might not know this, but my full name is Wilfredo. Okay? My full name, legal name, government name is Wilfredo. Now, I don't tell people that. Because it sounds like something you could order at Olive Garden, okay? But, but actually, I am the third. There's my grandpa, my dad, and me. My name is Wilfredo. Don't ever mention that again. Um, but my dad calls me Wilfred. It's short for Wilfredo. He's the only person that calls me Wilfred. And so he told me, I know, son, I need you to pass the ball, man. Like, stop doing that. And I'm like, I will see what happens, dad, wherever the spirit leads, brother. You know, like, and... 
So I get the ball, top of the key. It's like second quarter. And I get the ball, top of the key. Fake left, drive hard right. And right before I'm about to throw the ball, the, gym, the gym's like quiet, right? Right before I'm about to shoot it, you hear, Wilfred, no! <laughs> I throw the ball, air ball, I'm like, mm, whatever, run back. <laughs> right? But, but here's the thing. Here's why I tell you that story. Because with a shot like that and a face like that, okay, only a father can love someone like that. <laughs> but, but there was people on my team, there was guys on my team who were terrified to shoot. They were, they were terrified to make a bad play because there was a dad on the sideline who was either not there or was there, and their, their acceptance was based on how they played. And you could see it. There was this fear that they had because dad's not going to accept me if I don't perform. Man, the reason why I didn't care because I knew that regardless of how I played, my dad was still my dad. And he wasn't going to love me any less. He wasn't going to treat me any different. Man, when you understand the gospel, that's how we approach life. There's a freedom because we're secure. Amen? And the last thing we see is the Holy Spirit gives us a new purpose. A new purpose. And actually, to get that, that's not even in this passage. It actually comes from John 15. Look what it says in John 15, verse 26. It says, but when the helper comes whom I will send, this is Jesus talking, to his disciples. People say that the best sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. I would say that the best sermon is, is, is the sermon, the upper room discourse. Jesus says to the disciples, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, it says, who proceeds from the Father, listen to what the Spirit will do. He says, he will what? Bear witness about who? Me, Jesus. There's a spirit arrives, he will bear witness about me. In other words, the primary role that the Holy Spirit plays is he bears witness about Jesus. He, he elevates and he glorifies and he points to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, it is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does, the Holy Spirit, he does many things, but this is what he aims at in all of them, to glorify Christ. Why is that important? Because people, there's two extremes with the Holy Spirit. Either you ignore him completely, or there are certain denominations that build their whole theology around them. But what they miss is that the Holy Spirit exists in order to glorify Christ. Like a good floodlight, I don't know if you know what a floodlight is. A floodlight is what you put on the bottom of something in order to highlight something. The Holy Spirit is like a good floodlight. You don't see the floodlight, you see whatever it's highlighting. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So the Holy Spirit is more gospel-centered than we are, essentially. So listen, guys. My prayer for us and for not just us as individuals, but as a church corporately, I pray for High Point Church that we would become a church that becomes more and more like the Holy Spirit, that we would become a church where the, 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 the primary purpose of our church is to elevate, is to uh, lift up, is to focus, and to put the attention not on us, but on Jesus Christ our Lord. And my prayer is that we would become a place that decreases so that Jesus might increase. You know, here's the thing. In, in the passage, it says that Jesus cries out, it says that the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. The only other place you see that phrase, Abba, Father, is when Jesus is in the garden. And he is in the garden. He is begging God to take the cup away. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Jesus uses the same word, Abba, Father. What's crazy is that that same Jesus, just a few moments later, just a few hours later, the only time in his life that he doesn't use the phrase or the title, Father, is when he is on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus at the cross 
cross does not call his father father temporarily so that we might one day call him father for eternity. Man, come on, East Memphis. Man, come on, man. Not today. Not today. Come on. You're better than that. You're better than that. Okay? That, that's, what, that's, what, that's what we see. That's, that's crazy. Listen, listen. I, I don't know what title you have. I don't know if it's a positive title, mother, father, or, or a negative title. Someone's called you uh, a slut, or someone's called you broken, or someone's called you less than. I don't care what your title is. I'm here to tell you that the greatest title you will ever have, the greatest title you will ever have is not father, is not mother, is not doctor, is not lawyer, is not pastor, is not preacher. The greatest title we will ever have is that we are a child of God. Man, as the Holy Spirit starts to work in you, it says earlier in the passage that he, he sets our minds on the things of the Spirit, which is the gospel. And the more we focus on Jesus and the work that he did, the Holy Spirit, the, the gospel becomes this radioactive material that kills the tumor of sin in your life. There's a tumor of sin in your life, and the more you, you meditate and, and focus on the gospel, the radioactive material of the gospel shrinks the tumor of sin in your life. That's crazy, guys. It's beautiful and it's true. Listen, to the degree that you accept, embrace, and trust in God's spirit, to that same degree you will accept, embrace, and trust in God's son. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that the son loved us so much that he died for us and that the spirit loved us so much that he lives in us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you and we praise you for the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit, even now, that as we sing to you, as we praise you, that it would be the very Holy Spirit that is working in us. That it would be the very Holy Spirit that is lifting you up. The reason why our hearts burn within us when we think about you, when we lift you up, is because the Spirit is leading and guiding. Do your work. And I pray for the people here who don't know you. I pray that today would be the day that they embrace the spirit, that they accept them into their life, and that he would come and live in them and glorify Jesus for the rest of their lives. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.